like to thank everybody for joining us today. So uh, I'm I'm thrilled to death to have Adam Makos back with us as we begin talking the second part. Uh, we're going to discuss uh, a little bit of uh, the book Devotion. And uh, if you haven't read that book, I, I just want to out of the gate say it's another fantastic book by Adam Makos, and I highly recommend it. It tells an incredible story, uh, and a story that I think, and you, you can you can verify or, or at least address this, Adam, is that a story that we we need so desperately today in the society we live in. So, um, without further ado, thank you uh, for coming back and joining us, Adam. I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, share some insights on your book. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. Um, after you write a higher call, you say, where, where, where can I go from here? I mean, you have a story so good. How do you find the follow-up to that? And I believe we found a really beautiful story close to home. It's an American story. Uh, and that's the subject of devotion. And it's about the forgotten war, which for me was a bit scary. Um, I had never, I was, I, all I knew about Korea was MASH. I mean, uh, what, what do we know other than Marilyn Monroe sang for the troops and that, um, you know, the Mad Men TV show, Don Draper has flashbacks of the Korean War. And that was about as much as I knew. And um, I had actually met Tom Hudner, this hero named Tom Hudner, um, back in 2007 at a conference in Washington, D.C. He had done this incredible thing in the Korean War. In fact, he was a Navy fighter pilot and the captain of his carrier, aircraft carrier off the Korean coast, wired a cable back to Washington, D.C. Tom had done something that impressed the aircraft uh, uh, carrier captain to such an extent that he said, there has been no finer act of unselfish heroism in military history. What was that moment? You know, and, and when I saw Tom Hudner sitting there in the lobby after this conference, I went up to him. I said, Captain Hudner, may I interview you someday? And, and then I asked the punchline, has anybody ever written a book about you? And he said, no. And it was because Tom was such a humble man. They always said he was just, um, he was undemonstrative. I mean, he was just, uh, he was that, that quiet guy who, you wouldn't even know he served if he didn't tell you. He wasn't wearing around a ball cap that said, you know, Navy fighter pilot. He had earned the Medal of Honor. And yet there was no sign. There was no license plate on his car that said Medal of Honor recipient. Mm. He was just a man like any of our grandfathers. But he had done something so incredible. I had to find out what it was. And it dealt with this pilot named Jesse Brown. Tom was white, of course. He was Caucasian. Jesse Brown was his wingman. I guess, you know, you might say Tom was Jesse's wingman, actually, most of the time. And Jesse Brown was the first African-American Navy fighter pilot. Um, he was a one-man Tuskegee Airman. Because, you know, in World War II, the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, I think there were about 1,500 by the end of the war. You know, some were bomber pilots, some were fighter pilots. They, they broke the color barrier as a class. Whereas... Jesse Brown did it alone. The Navy held out longer. Uh, and it wasn't until 1947 that uh, Truman integrated the military. And then Jesse Brown came along and became the first black naval aviator. They had no choice but to give him a fair chance. But at that time, a lot of people said black men and white men will never fight side by side. This is an experiment. 
It's a folly. A lot of generals and admirals were saying that. Mm. So Jesse Brown was not just a pioneer. He was a, the spotlight was on him. The scrutiny was on him. He was a test subject. Yeah. Wow. And, and, you know, just being in a fighter squadron on top of that, you know, the, the pressure that would come with, I mean, as it is today, they were, you know, they were some of the best of the best uh, doing what they do. And, and the fact that he was able to integrate into that in the Navy is awesome. Yeah. They were very different men to be wingmen too. Uh, you know, Jesse had a little more flight time than Tom. So he led most of their flights and uh, Jesse was from Mississippi. He was a sharecropper's son. He grew up dirt poor. I mean, he would work in the fields barefoot. They would save their, their shoes for Sunday church. And they would go to their little like one room Baptist church. Uh, so, so this is how dirt poor he was. Um, all the kids, you know, 50 kids in a one room schoolhouse, you know, all the, all grades all the way up to, you know, kindergarten through eighth grade, all crammed into one room. I mean, they were as poor as could be. Jesse lived in a shack that would, that would leak when the rain came at night. But he had this dream that he could fly for the U.S. Navy. He used to read these magazines at night by candlelight. He wanted to be an aviator. And, uh, and he had this, his mother said to him, you know, Jesse, you can do anything through education. And his father said, you can do anything through hard work. And he put those two things together. He worked hard. And he got himself into Ohio State, and he just he broke through where other people would have probably I, I I would have lived a life of depression if I was him. I would have never left the South. I would have never left those fields, and I would have been bitter. But Jesse believed that he could achieve great things, and he believed he could serve this country. That's what he wanted to do. He loved America, even though America didn't love him back. So he was a remarkable human being. And then Tom Hudner comes from the opposite end of the spectrum. Tom was a New Englander. He came from the country club scene. His father owned grocery stores and his grandfather had had built this small little empire. And Tom was supposed to go to Harvard like his father. And he was supposed to inherit the family business and, you know, marry a beautiful wife and hang out at the country clubs. Instead, Tom said, I want to serve my country. And this was at the very end of World War II. And he joined, he went, attended the Naval Academy, but he was too late to fight in World War II. But still, he wanted to be a fighter pilot. I mean, if you think about it, a guy who, could, who had his whole life on a silver spoon and he's willing to do this dangerous job, both of these guys, Tom and Jesse, became Corsair pilots. And so they're going to land the F-4U Corsair on an aircraft carrier, a plane that was oftentimes called the Widowmaker because it had this big, long nose. And it was very difficult to see around that when you were coming in on the approach for a carrier landing. And so you had to come in at an angle and you had to, you know, it was just, it was like a con controlled crash. And the guys who could do that, I, I, it still blows my mind. I just write about them. They did it, how they did it, how they walked away, where they found the courage. I don't know, but these guys were some of the best of the best. These were top gun pilots, 1950. Yeah, that's, that's great. And it, it is, I've heard that from many people that that's a very challenging airplane to fly and you can definitely as you look at it see how big that you know obviously big massive engine in front of you is uh it's just hard to see out of it you know out of the front of it so uh and landing on a small moving airstrip <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's still you know as an air force guy i don't like to give the navy guys too much credit but it's pretty uh 
it's pretty <laughs> incredible that they can do that. So that's my quick little uh, punch for that. So anyway, uh, yeah. So <laughs> again, as as I read this book, Adam, I just thought, gosh, you've discovered another incredible story that I had never heard of. Both were stories that after I read, I thought, why have I never heard this before? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's and, and that's where I sometimes wonder if uh, it's if it's something's meant to be about this, because um, why were they just sitting there? I mean, Tom and Jesse, you know, Tom was a rule follower. And this book is a very much about a man who is very rigid and he, and he sticks to the rules. Tom was kind of what you might call a nerd in a lot of ways. He's a fighter pilot, but he wasn't he wasn't like Maverick. He's not you're dangerous. You know, he's. He's a rule follower. And so this book follows his transformation. A guy like Jesse was a little more audacious, a little more confident. And so we follow the transformation when Tom is eventually asked to break the biggest rule of his life. And it all hinges around the Korean War, which is this unknown war. But if you told Americans that, yeah, there was one day where 20,000 U.S. Marines and Army soldiers are in far northern North Korea, surrounded in a valley by a hundred thousand Chinese communist troops. And it's the dead of winter. You know, we're talking negative 20 degrees, negative 30 degrees below zero at night. They're freezing, they're cut off. And all they have is air support. If they're going to ever fight their way out of North Korea and get to the coast and get to ships. I mean, this is going to be the biggest disaster of the Korean war. It started November 27th, 1950. Our guys thought we were all going to be home for Christmas. We're going to win the war. We were almost at the top of the border. We almost pushed the North Koreans to the Chinese border. You know, we were about to wrap this thing up and come home. And the Chinese entered the war. See, they didn't want to have a democracy on their border. And they still don't secretly. You know, they don't want to see a unified Korea because, you know, suddenly you have another democracy right next to them. And that's a threat to them. So they entered the war. They surrounded our guys, and that's when Tom and Jesse were called in. Their carrier, their task force pulled up off the Korean coast, and they came in with rockets and bombs and napalm and delivered uh, close air support to these Marines and Army soldiers who were cut off. And they were the lifeline for our guys at the Chosen Reservoir. Yeah, yeah. That was that, that whole chapter where you talk about that valley and the, the battle that's going on, and just. <laughs> It's an incredible, it's an incredible story in that book. And uh, I loved how you not only took it from, uh, um, you know, Jesse and Tom's uh, perspective, but you had perspective of the guys on the ground and what they were going through. And, you know, this is pre-A-10 uh, days. So these guys were coming in, giving close air support, trying to help out the guys on the ground. Incredible yeah. story. Well, you know, Steve, we um, we felt that my dad and brother, they also work with me on these books. My dad does a lot of interviews for us. My brother, Brian, uh, does the research and I do the writing. So we're a team and we all put our heads together and we said, you know, we you can't appreciate Tom and Jesse's story and the sacrifice that I'll tell you about in just a minute unless you realize who they were fighting for. And so we had to show the conditions on the ground, not just the shivering in the cold and the fact that they couldn't even eat canned rations because the rations were bursting from the cold. These guys were down to living on frozen jelly and Tootsie Rolls. I mean, that's how desperate it was. And 
you know, they're fighting these human wave assaults. So we found one of the Marines who was there. His name was Red Parkinson. And Red was in the middle of this, you know. We're talking about, you know, a hundred and so Marines are holding this small stretch of the line and they're facing 5,000 Chinese. And the Chinese would attack in these human waves because, you know, that was their fighting style. It was use your submachine guns, use your grenades, get in close and kill the enemy with your bare hands. They were told to hug your enemy. That was their fighting tactic. And so it sounded like a stampede of wild animals coming at these guys. And so the flares are popping. The Chinese would only attack at night because nighttime is when the Americans lost their chief advantages. One was their M1 Garand rifles, which could you know shoot out easily 500 yards, knock down a target. The other advantage was air power. And so if the planes can't fly, that's when the Chinese are going to hit. And, and so, yeah, we go into a frozen creek bed where Red and his guys are, are posting their rifles up and the enemy is swarming them. They're charging through the fields and they're jumping into the creek bed and they're fighting with knives. It's, um, it's, a, it's a level of combat that in a place that is so cold and bitter in these frozen snowy mountains. I mean, this is like something out of the Lord of the Rings. You know, it's almost uh, it's almost like a fantasy story. Americans would be amazed to learn that this battle took place. And um, sadly, I have to announce that Red Parkinson, when we talk about that that clock ticking and we're losing our Korean War veterans now, more than half are gone. Red died this morning at 3.10 a.m. in uh, upstate New York. And so we lost one of the last heroes of this book, Devotion. Um, and I had just come back from Tom Hudner's funeral. Uh, just yesterday, uh, Tom was interred at Arlington. And so we'll, we'll tell what he did that made him such an incredible figure. But I mean, we lost Red today. And thank God we got his story before before we did. And, and he's going to live on forever. And people are going to discover this incredible story of the Chosen Reservoir. It's, it's about time. I, I didn't know that, Adam. So I'm sorry to hear that. And I know you, you had a chance to get to know him. And so... It's tough. That's it's tough as we lose these. And yet again, like we said, I'm I'm thankful that, like you said, the story will be out there. We'll continue to tell it. Well, I, uh, I I'm I would love if you wouldn't mind. Just I don't know. I don't know how much of the book you want to give away. If you want to touch on, you know, the just the incredible story of it. Um, uh, I'm definitely interested in that. So I'll leave that up to you, Adam. What you want to share on that? Well, I I think it'd be. Uh... I think it's only appropriate to to honor Tom, to honor uh, Jesse Brown, to to tell what happened. December fourth, you know, we're we're a few days into the battle, a week into the battle, the Chosen Reservoir, and and our Marines are poor are pulling out of this valley, and they're starting to fight their way. Uh, they're preparing to fight their way to the sea coast um, to prevent what was going to be a disaster. I mean, the destruction of the First Marine Division. That's what we were facing. And Tom and Jesse. Um, flew in on a road recon mission. So what they were going to do was fly up into enemy territory during daylight hours. It was in the early afternoon and they were going to search and destroy any Chinese soldiers they could find. Um, they would, they would, um, you know, eliminate. And the idea was any you can kill in the daylight will, will be a few fewer attacking our, our guys at night. And while they were hunting for the enemy, uh, you know, these individual enemy soldiers they could hide in the snow. That's what they would do. They had white uniforms, white jackets, white pants, and they would all lay down on cue and basically 
their rifles would look like a bunch of sticks in a field and they would be blending in with the snow. And that's what took down Jesse Brown. They flew over an unseen group of Chinese soldiers and a lucky shot hit his oil tank in the front of his Corsair and it began bleeding oil. Now, if it was fuel that was hit, he would have been able to make it to the coast, perhaps uh, reach an emergency strip and live to fight another day. Instead, with his oil bleeding, the Corsair was going down and fast and he found the only spot he could. I mean, these guys are in the mountains right now and he spotted a bowl-shaped valley and it was on the top of a mountain. So this kind of strange depression all the way at high altitude. He said, I'm going in and the, his, his uh, squadron mates watched as Jesse's plane went lower and lower and Tom stayed with him and tried to talk him down. But Right near the end of the approach, Jesse's engine seized. You know, the oil had all bled out. The engine melted, essentially, and uh, into a core. And he just, he lost power. And this 12,000-pound Corsair fighter became a 12,000-pound rock. And it just fell the last 25 feet to earth and just smacked down on this mountain so hard that the engine tore from the, its mount. The nose of the aircraft bent to the right almost to a 90-degree angle, and it skidded through the snow, revealing a patch of rock behind the aircraft. The, the mountain that looked soft was actually solid rock on the top. And uh, Jesse was trapped in his aircraft, and his aircraft began smoking from the nose, and he couldn't get out because he was pinned in there by his leg. He had taken off his helmet, he had taken off his gloves in an attempt to unlatch himself, and he lost his communication with his squadron mates because he dropped that helmet and he couldn't reach it. The floor was so far down that he, he couldn't get to it. So Tom Hudner, who was, uh, who was flying as Jesse's wingman, is overhead looking down. And he's saying, why isn't Jesse getting out? Nobody knew, but they knew he was catching on fire. And they knew their friend was about to burn to death far from home. Now, Jesse was a married man. He had a young uh, daughter named Pamela. And he had a, a wife named Daisy. And Tom Hudner saw, saw an incredible loss about to occur. Now, they had been warned earlier in this squadron, this Navy fighter squadron. Some of the guys had seen a movie uh, called Fighter Squadron. And it came out in 1948. And in it, an American P-51 pilot or, or P-47 in the movie was shot down behind enemy lines in Germany. And his buddy landed, picked him up. And he put his friend on his lap and they took off in a single seat aircraft and flew back to their base. It had really happened in World War II. A pilot named Pierce McKinnon of the 4th Fighter Group was shot down and his wingman, a Lieutenant Green, picked him up and flew him back to, to safety. So it had been done before. And these young fighter pilots were joking around one day saying, you know, that's what they would do if one of their buddies got shot down. And their squadron leader said, if you even think of that, I'll court martial you. It's not worth losing two aircraft and maybe two pilots when we've already lost one. So Tom Hudner, the rule follower, decides to do this incredible act. It's against his own nature. He's supposed to follow the rules. His squadron leader told him the rules, and Tom says, I'm going in. Now, all the other pilots in the air that day didn't understand what he meant at first. And that's why nobody tried to stop him. They just watched as Tom Hudner you know, lowered his flaps and jettisoned his ordnance 
and went in and made essentially a wheels up carrier landing on the mountaintop right alongside of Jesse, Jesse Brown's aircraft. And he came to a skidding stop right next to his friend to the right of Jesse's plane. And Tom hit so hard, the windshield shattered and he, and he hurt his back and he opened up the wind, uh, the canopy. And he said, my God, what was I thinking? It was frigid cold. He's in the snow. Daylight is fading. And suddenly he is 13 miles behind enemy lines doing this act that had never been done before or since. And uh, should I tell how it, how it ended? You know, that's, uh, that's up to you, Adam, if you want to, if you want to save that for the book, or if you want to share that, it's, it's an incredible story, obviously. Um, uh, <laughs> just to, to hear you tell it again, I'm just envisioning, you know, crash landing your airplane next to your buddy, you know, to help. Now, during the fil- or during the writing of this book, uh, you had the rare opportunity to be able to go to North Korea and try and locate uh, some of the wreckage. Yeah, that was. Um, it all stemmed from this promise Tom made to Jesse. So Tom was able to. Let's say this much: we won't say what happened on the mountaintop because I don't want to ruin it for anyone who wants to read the book. But Tom was able to put out the fire using snow with his own bare hands. He put out the fire. And he put his own, he took a hat that he had brought with him, a, a watch cap, and he pulled it over Jesse's ears. His friend was freezing to death. Jesse was badly injured in the crash. He had internal injuries. And Tom stayed with him as, as long as he could. And eventually, Jesse asked Tom if he would do something. He said, will you tell my wife, Daisy, how much I love her? And he gave us essentially a last message. So... Tom survived the mountaintop that day. And I think we all take it for granted. He got off there and I won't say how, or I won't say what, you know, the circumstances, but he, we all take for granted that, that he, he survived this, but really Tom put himself 13 miles behind enemy lines on a mountain in the snow with really no hope for escape. There were only three Marine helicopters in the region and they were back at this base 13 miles away. And they had thousands of wounded Marines to deal with who had been wounded and maimed in the one, one or two weeks to the fighting that had preceded this. And so the fact that a helicopter would come for him, that was a forlorn hope. I mean, Tom really put himself, he was about to give up his life to try to save a friend with really almost no hope of escape. The fact that he lived to tell it, is another incredible story. But when he got back to his aircraft carrier, he expected to be court-martialed. He had violated his squadron leader's rule. He had lost a Navy aircraft, and he had failed to save his friend. Instead, his commander said, well, you know, those rules were essentially made when it was a nameless, faceless pilot. When suddenly it was Jesse Brown, a friend on the ground, the rules went out the window. And so instead of being court-martialed, when Tom came home, their, their tour was up soon, he received a call when he was back in Massachusetts from the White House. President Truman wants to give you the Medal of Honor. And in 1951, April 1951, Tom went to Washington, and he was awarded the Medal of Honor. And what he had done had 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 been more momentous than just trying to save a friend, more momentous than something that just would make for a good book. 
he had validated Truman's decision to integrate the U.S. military because this story went nationwide in 1950, 1951. It was published in the black newspapers. It was published in the white newspapers. And everybody was amazed that a white man and black man would have this relationship. And uh, one of the black newspapers said, this Tom Hudner's actions were a lesson in the brotherhood of man. And so you had white people comforting Jesse Brown's widow. You had black people writing to Tom to thank him. And you had Truman who said, see, I was right. This can work. And that anchored this idea. And that's why we have the military we do, the diverse military today. And, um, and these two were essentially pioneers in that. And that may be their ultimate legacy. Tom delivered the last words to Jesse's widow. And then he went further. He ended up putting, putting her through college. You know, and the ship, the the men, mostly the white people on the ship, because you know you had you had a very small number of black stewards and deck hands, and they had a lot of them the jobs like the cooks and a lot of the unglamorous work was given to African Americans back then. So you had a small number of them on the ship, and you had a large number of Caucasians, and yet all these men came together. They put a collection together, and they raised thousands and thousands, equivalent to about twenty thousand dollars. And they put Jesse's daughter through college with that. And so it's a, it's, it's a story. And, and in the book, you'll discover what was so special about Jesse Brown. That was one of my premises. Why would Tom break his own rules? Why, why, how did he change? And who was this Jesse Brown? What was so special about him that would lead a man to crash land behind enemy lines in the snow in enemy territory and pretty much essentially you know, be willing to lay down his life for his brother? So that, that will be discovered, but this story ended in such a way that we wanted to revisit it someday. We had to revisit it because the way it ended, it, it wasn't the end of the story. So did, uh, when you guys made the decision to go back, um, did, um, did Tom contact you and say, Hey, this is something I'd like to do, or I'm looking at doing, how did that come about? And what was, what was it like doing that? Well, what happened when I was writing the part where Tom was on the mountainside with Jesse, Tom made Jesse a promise. He said, we'll be back for you. Now, Tom was thinking, we'll be back tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. Somehow, some way, we're going to come get you. And when I wrote those words, I thought, wait a second. Did you ever get to go back for Jesse Brown? So I called him up and I said, Tom, did you ever get to North Korea in your long career in the U.S. Navy, 27 years. He said, no. He said, nobody goes to North Korea. You just can't. You know, we don't have diplomatic relations with them. Tourism is, is frowned upon. It's known as the hermit kingdom. I said, well, would you like to go? And he said, why, yeah, I would. How are you going to do that? And it turns out we had some connections who had been into North Korea, and they told us how to do it. And, you know, if I tell all of it, I'd get in some trouble, um, probably with the federal government uh, or, you know, I, I really can't disclose all of how we got there. But um, the, all that to say, at age 89 in 2013, Tom Hudner went to North Korea and I went with him and my brother and dad and and his family and some of his fellow veterans said, don't do this. You know, they, they you know, some of his family were, were really supportive. His wife, Georgia, said. You made a promise to Jesse, you got to go do this. And others were worried about him. 
some of his veterans said they're going to use your Medal of Honor. You know, you're going to become a propaganda piece. They're going to put you in a cage. Before we went, Dennis Rodman had gone the year prior and he came home. But, you know, Dennis Rodman was, you know, it was unique circumstances. They had just locked up a fellow named Kenneth Bay who had brought over Bibles and was trying to convert people. So he was in a North Korean jail when we went over. And the guy who went after us, um, he ended up, his name was Merrill Newman. He was a Korean war veteran. He got locked up. And then later on, there's Otto Warbringer. And, you know, he gets locked up and eventually killed. So we went over in the middle of all this. And, you know, it was dangerous. But Tom Hudner was our insurance policy. I mean, the Medal of Honor around his neck. And the fact that he had gone so far after so long to honor a friend, it impressed the North Koreans. So, you know, you get off the plane in North Korea and you've got these, these six or seven plain clothed handlers, you know, they're wearing suits. And I thought, okay, you know, some of them spoke English one or two. And the next day we all sit down in a conference room together and the same guys walk in and they're all wearing North Korean green uniforms with the red shoulder boards. I find out, wait, they're all colonels in the North Korean army. Hmm. And these guys were there to basically escort us for our trip, which ended up being 10 days. And also to conduct what was actually a sort of diplomatic negotiation. See, we went to North Korea to go back to the chosen reservoir, to go back to the mountain and to find the crash sites of Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown, because, you know, 24,000 pounds of metal, there's got to be something left, even though the Navy dropped napalm on these aircraft. There's got to be a trace left. We wanted to find Jesse Brown's remains because they never came home. Tom wanted to give him a burial site. And Jesse Brown's widow, Daisy, who was still living, she said, I wish you all the success. She was following it from America. I think some people were following it to see if we ever came home. You know, are we going to see, uh, see Tom Hudner and, and Adam and Brian and Bob on trial? Nobody knew. Turned out the North Koreans have a lot of respect for their elders. They have a lot of respect for the military and in particular, the American military. It's a fearsome respect. I mean, in their, one of the museums, we went to Kim Jong-un's private military museum. Now I expected to see when you first walk in, you see all these tanks and, and, and rocket launchers and they have written on them death to America and this white sharp paint, you know, and it's in their, their script. Um, and uh, they told us, they said, yeah, it, it says death to America. And we went on further into the museum. Now, this is Kim Jong-un's private museum. And you turn a corner and you enter the American exhibit. And wait a second. There's the, a model, scale model, seven or eight feet long, the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier sailing through the water with all these little F-18s on the deck. It, it's not shown sinking. It's sailing through the sea and a mural on the wall. And it's American M1 Abrams tanks charging across the desert with little American flags flying from the tanks, blowing in the breeze. It's in Iraq. Then there's a model of a B-2 Spirit bomber at Osan Air Base. It's not our stuff, our, our military hardware depicted broken or in flames. It's a strange homage. And so... All I can conclude is that even if they don't like us, even if they fear us, they respect us. And that respect kept Tom and us safe. We were supposed to go to the Chosen Reservoir, but when we got in there, the monsoons were hitting. 
and the roads were washing away because North Korea doesn't have the infrastructure that we do. You know, their roads are, you know, an inch or two of blacktop and everything else is dirt. So it's washing away into the streams. We would go over when we were trying to get into the countryside with our, with our hosts, we would go over bridges that had buckled at the center. And it was probably a North Korean logic. It was really, really stupid, but we drove over these bridges. You know, you'd go down and then you'd, you'd, you'd hit a couple bumps and you'd go up. And the next day, these bridges washed away. We did that and we were driving around in a Mercedes and then we had a bus behind us with all of our gear. We, we should have drowned in those rivers, to be quite honest. Um, but we found out we couldn't get to the Chosin Reservoir. I asked the North Koreans, I said, can you get us a Hind helicopter? You know, can we go across the country in that? They said, our landing pad. They said, we have a landing pad there already waiting for you. They said, our people are stranded there. They said, the whole country was just hit by this massive flood and the rain kept coming and coming and coming. And that's one of the real problems. American MIAs are in that soil. And North Korea, you know, time is eroding the bones and it's washing them away. And it was very frustrating. Yeah. To be so close and yet not be able to, to get right to it, you know. Exactly. We were so close. Instead, they treated us as diplomats. And so what they, they wanted to do was, now, it's, this is a, the bipolar nature of North Korea. One minute, you know, they're, they're your friends. And the next minute, one night, uh, I, or, or one day, I had left my hotel room. You know, they would knock on the door at 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay, today we're going to museum or we're going to see the tomb. Their leaders are embalmed, laying in glass co uh, uh, coffins. Um, some, one day we went to, a, a, some caves, some ice caves, you know, every day they were trying to do stuff to show us their country, mm -hmm. but they would wake you up at six 30 and boom, you had to be downstairs in 15 minutes. They don't realize that, you know, you know, we like to shower and, you know, one day I, I went back to my room, I doubled back from the elevator and sure enough, there were people coming out of the room next to me. And all I can conclude was it was a surveillance team. Because they acted very, oh, 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 what are you doing here? What are you doing? And, um, you know, you would go to these events. We went to their big games where they have 100,000 people crammed into a stadium. And you would see two rows behind you, the surveillance team. You know, we were, ta we were tailed the whole time. The room was bugged the whole time. And we found out on the last day that all these colonels who we thought spoke just Korean, they all spoke English, but they wouldn't let on. So even when you would, you know, you would, you would sometimes try to catch them, you know, you'd say, you'd address them in English. These guys were so good. They didn't even, they didn't even blink. So we didn't know till the last day that they, uh, they knew everything we were saying. And so we were careful, of course, it was, yeah. it was quite the experience. What an incredible experience. Well, that's awesome. Well, the last thing I'd just like to wrap up with Adam is just, uh, I know you just got back from Tom's funeral. If you just like to touch on that, I, uh, I would imagine that was an incredible experience to go out for that. It was. We we lost Tom in November, and um, and he was interred. There was something very interesting beyond just his family being at the funeral and his friends like me, and to see ten Medal of Honor recipients. You know these men with with the blue ribbon around their neck and the gold medal. They come up one by one to to comfort his wife as they as the military hands the flag to her that was folded over his co coffin. Um, 
General Dunford was there, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. The one incredible thing about it was there were some folks there from Hollywood. Glenn Powell is an American actor, and uh, he was in the movie uh, Hidden Figures. You might have seen that. He played John Glenn. He was also in the action movie Expendables 3 with Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Harrison Ford, all those guys. And so he's an up and coming star, you know, maybe the next Brad Pitt and um, just a great guy. Great, great young man. And he um, he wanted to play Tom Hudner and he actually reached out to me and and he and we ended up working out an arrangement where there's a movie company that is going to develop a devotion movie and tell the story of Tom and Jesse. And we're really excited. And the producer, Rachel Smith, was at the internment in Arlington. The screenwriter, Jake Crane, was there. The, and, and Glenn Powell was there. So this is Hollywood showing up to pay their respects at Arlington. So a lot of people, when they hear about the movie, they say, oh, no, Hollywood will screw it up. Oh, is this going to be a Hollywood movie? These people were at the funeral, you know, uh, and Glenn actually went to meet Tom last spring to sit down with him and just to share stories. So you have a young man with a very old man and they just hit it off. And so the movies, you know, they're developing the script, you know, will it happen? It's looking pretty good. But if it happens, this is going to be the first Korean war movie since pork chop Hill, pork chop Hill was Gregory Peck. We're talking 1956. Oh, wow. And my goal for this, you know, if I, if I have to be quite honest, it's, I want to change the way we look at Korean War veterans. I, you know, when you see a veteran with a ball cap and it says Korean War on it, if it said World War II, we would thank him and we'd say, oh, did you fight in the Battle of the Bulge? Were you in the Pacific? The Korean War, we just look at him with a blank stare. You know, what was the Korean War? I want to change that. We want to give it the Saving Private Ryan of the Korean War so that when somebody sees that veteran, whether he's an uncle or a grandfather, they thank him for his service and they mean it. And it's as meaningful as if they were talking to a World War II veteran because the Korean War generation is the same as the World War II generation. They're all the greatest generation. These are the guys that just were in just a little too late to fight in World War II. The greatest generation fought two wars and we left 37,000 Americans. We lost 37,000 Americans in Korea. And it's time to change that. And the last thing I'll say about the film. Um, this will mean something to the followers of Combat Learjet, and that is they're going to be real Corsairs. This is not going to be a CGI um, Red Tails style movie. You know, and I've already contacted the owners of three Corsairs to kind of start collecting the stable and seeing who's interested. So, hey, if anybody listening is friends with a Corsair owner, uh, you know, drop me a line. But, um, I want to assemble a whole bunch of aircraft and I want to put something on screen that is going to be meaningful for, for all of us. You know, it's the reward of seeing great men in action and coming to appreciate um, this thing that we all love aviation, especially when aviation is used to preserve the freedom uh, that we enjoy. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and I just will say, uh, Adam, as you get closer and you're looking for those Corsairs, let me know and we'll see what I, I guarantee there's people out there that follow that will know somebody that flies Corsairs and can help out. So uh, I'd be more than happy to help out if you're uh, in need of that. So I just want to wrap up, Adam, tell you, I can't thank you enough for coming on uh, today. 
this was incredible. Absolutely. I, just, I was just sitting here listening to it again, going, wow. I had multiple comments in the live chat saying this was the best podcast they've ever listened to. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, guys, so, I, I'm passionate about this story. Um, you know, when you speak from the heart and you, you know, I, I, I love these guys. And I, I, would, I would bet that the people listening now feel the same way about our veterans. This is our grandfathers, our fathers, our uncles, and these are our heroes. So it's an honor to get to write about them. It's an honor to talk about them. And we're all on the same team here. We're all trying to just make sure they're not forgotten. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Adam. I, uh, well, thank uh, you, Steve and Derek. It's been awesome. Yeah. Outstanding. So, uh, with that, we're going to wrap it up. We really appreciate you joining in with our podcast uh, today. I hope you enjoyed it. And, uh, if you don't own these books, you need to get these books. They are fantastic. And we really just, touched on the highlights of them. There's a lot more detail. There's a lot more in there. Absolutely. So thanks again, Adam. We appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.